Just a quick message before the episode gets underway. The Aurora Renewables Summit London is returning on the afternoon of Wednesday the 26th of June. Book your ticket now to hear from leading experts in the energy industry as they assess the opportunities and challenges within the UK and the wider European renewable sector. You will also benefit from unparalleled networking opportunities. We look forward to seeing you there. Good afternoon uh, and welcome to Aurora's fourth uh, annual Battery Storage and Flexibility Conference uh, in 2019. My name is John Feddersen. I'm Aurora's Chief Executive. I'm yes, the over 600 people the made their way uh, to the De Vere Grand Connaught Rooms in central London to attend an event that gets bigger and bigger every year. As usual, it combined original analysis from Aurora with perspective from leading figures from industry, finance and policy. One of those leading figures was Finton Sly, Director of the System Operator at National Grid. Now, it's often said that all publicity is good publicity, but that wasn't the case for the National Grid on August the 9th this year. Power outages left thousands of rail passengers stranded, over a million households without electricity, and serious doubts about the National Grid's ability to maintain grid reliability in a world with significantly higher renewable penetration. John Feddersen, who you heard just a moment ago, had a one-to-one discussion with Mr Sly. They also talked about the National Grid's ambition to be ready to operate a zero-carbon system as early as 2025. I caught up with Mr Sly afterwards. What we want to be able to do is, as these renewable technologies come on and grow on the system, and we've seen huge growth in offshore wind in particular, huge growth in solar coming onto the system, we want to make sure that when they are available and when they can generate, that we don't have to curtail them because that's waste energy. So we want to be able to maximize the usage of those resources uh, when they're available. And when we look out over the next few years, what we see is that with the projected continuing growth in offshore wind, in solar, we see that by 2025, we think that there'll be times of the day when we'll have enough zero carbon sources available to us in the UK that we, if we can manage to operate the system safely and securely, that doing it at zero carbon will also be the cheapest answer for consumers. So what we're doing is making sure that we put in place all of the necessary building blocks to make sure that when we... First of all, let's talk about uh, net zero by 2025. How hard is it going to be? What are the key things you need to do? So I think in addition to the changes that are needed in the energy mix in order for there to be enough zero carbon generation. A system operator, we need to be able to make sure that we can operate that, uh, that generation uh, when it's available uh, to meet demand. So the key thing there for us is around uh, the flexibility to manage the variability uh, in the system and also then managing the stability of the system as well. So we have a number of projects underway. Uh, a key one of them is around inertia, both measuring the inertia on the system and also then looking to procure inertia as as a standalone market uh, for inertia. We also obviously need to look at the tools and facilities that are available to the control room uh, to help them manage what is going to be a much more complex power system at that time. One of the questions actually that came up uh, in the Q&A at the end was uh, are these targets ambitious enough? What would you say to that? Uh, So I think what we've seen is a huge change in the dialogue that's happening within British society over the last six months, uh, indeed, you know, with 
the Extinction Rebellion protests with Greta Thunberg, with uh, Net Zero being legislated to it being uh, much more part of the normal, uh, that, that transition to a more sustainable system. And we need to continually challenge ourselves around how quickly can we get there. Uh, is 2025 and managing the system with zero carbon and 2050, are they challenging enough? I think you've got to look at the fact that there is huge investment required in generation technologies, uh, in facilities in order to actually get there. So it's not something that you can just turn around and do uh, overnight. But I think we need to continue to challenge ourselves, see how can we do it quicker and how can we help with uh, some of those early stage ideas. So how can we get more innovation into the system earlier so that those new technologies that potentially will allow us to get to that 2050 target sooner, is there a way that we can help them in those earlier stages and push that, those, that innovation earlier? Now, as I suspect you thought might happen, an awful lot of uh, John Federson's questions uh, regarded what happened on August the 9th. Um, when, it, when it comes to balancing cost for the customer and, I suppose, total reliability, tell me a bit about that. So, I mean, I think what we see is that that balance was set is set within the security supply standards. So they set out the uh, types of event on the system that the system operator needs to make sure that the system can manage and respond to and be secure from. And I think what we've seen post the 9th of August is that you know it probably is time to have a conversation you know between regulators, government, industry, society, the system operator around what is the appropriate trade-offs that we need to make because you can't get to a 100% reliable system. Um, and different levels of reliability result in different levels of costs for consumers. So how do you get to the right balance between a level of reliability and resilience in the system and an appropriate cost that consumers have to pay? Because we're also acutely conscious that consumers' bills, um, you know, we, we don't want to inadvertently or add costs to, to consumers' bills. So I think that's a, a conversation that, that is... Uh, likely to happen on foot of the 9th of August uh, and you know one that as system operator we actually think it's a good idea. The first panel discussion of the day was called Flexibility 2.0 Evolution of the Power Market System Needs and Emerging Technologies. One of the participants was Robin Lucas, Head of Data Science at Open Energy. The first question that was asked was how do you get the right amount of flexibility? Could you I suppose roughly summarise what you said? Uh, sure, we can get the right amount of flexibility by being very technology agnostic and spreading the net wide. So looking at demand side assets, looking at battery storage, looking at other types of emerging technology, so hydrogen electrolyzers, electric vehicles, and by being very diverse in the tech that we use to flex and being very efficient in the way that we flex it and having smooth data flows between the different parties involved. We can get to the road to 2050 with this very high renewables world, which demands so much flexibility as we saw earlier on today. Okay, so I'm hearing technology neutral, leaving options open, and getting the timing right. Robin, you haven't commented on this yet. Is there a role for, for big data? I mean, there's all this hype about machine learning and, and, and um, algorithms. Absolutely. I think it's about making the most efficient use of the infrastructure we have and not doing a massive overbuild of... The tech is there, it exists today, and uh, all we really need is the commercial business models to grow it and scale it to other industries who use big data 
in a really efficient way too. So if we compare ourselves to banking, for example, we're quite a lot earlier on the road in terms of big data technologies. We don't quite have that level of data in the energy system yet, but um, we, we certainly are on the road to there with lots of distributed, decentralized assets providing us with huge streams of data into our platform. Uh, and the system needs becoming more and more volatile at different times of year. That was Robin Lucas from Open Energy. Now, Open Energy, alongside Osborne Clark, Fluence, Freedom and Clark Energy were sponsors of the event, as were Inesco. They're well known for having designed and built the first subsidy-free solar site in the UK, but not everyone realises that this site is co-located with battery storage. Mike Ryan is their Director of Asset Management. He says a lot of people don't seem to get how it works. So I think the confusion is more around when you co-locate, how do you optimise those two assets to make sure you're maximising the revenue streams you're getting? In reality, those two assets operate completely independently of one another right now. The solar sells its power, as any solar site would, and the battery earns its money from wholesale arbitrage, the balancing mechanism, and ancillary services, as any other battery site would. What you're actually achieving by co-locating them is a reduction in your capex and a reduction in your opex that leads to a 3% increase in your IRR. Now, the beauty of the project is because they're co-located, it provides you flexibility that in the future, if the revenue streams are there to co-optimise, it's all set up to do that. Do you think those returns on investment, do you think that would have surprised people? Yes, ultimately, I think they would. Um, I'm not going to say it's necessarily a good surprise, but there's a lot of buzz in the market that you know, oh, people must be earning double-digit returns, you know, mid-teens. And the truth of the matter is that's, that's just not there. But that shouldn't be seen as a negative because in reality, if your returns are 9, 9.5%, 10%, but they're stable, they're reliable, and you can see them year in, year out, then that should be a completely investable proposition. The real challenge is the perceived risk with those returns. And in fact, in the panel, we were talking about it, that really there's two ways you can fix that. You can either contract that risk out, either by having a floor price or some kind of tolling agreement, or the alternative, and to be honest, my preferred approach, is we educate our investors so they understand what those returns are and they understand that volatility doesn't always equal risk. That was Mike Ryan, Director of Asset Management for Inesco. To say the least, it's been a rather busy time in British politics of late. In fact, the conference took place on the same day as the Queen's speech. Alan Whitehead is the Shadow Minister for Energy and Climate Change, and he came straight over from the House of Commons to talk about various aspects of Labour's energy policy. He spoke to Richard Howard, Aurora's Research Director. The first bit of what Alan said um, was that there's a difference between what has been said in Labour's conference, which was very ambitious and said we should definitely get to net zero by 2030, Um, It seems that official Labour policy isn't quite so strict um, and he was comfortable with the idea that as long as we're well on our way to net zero by 2030 then we'd be in a a pretty good place. Peter had been talking about Labour policy erring towards nationalisation but he seemed to clear that up a bit. He he did to an extent. So I believe Labour's position is that they would want to nationalise the network companies and um, at the Labour conference, they also talked about nationalising the big six energy retailers, although I believe that's not um, Labour's official policy position as yet. How sympathetic do you think the audience were towards his answers? I think the audience was very sympathetic towards the idea that we need to go further and faster on 
uh, reducing our carbon emissions. Whether they would fully buy into the idea that we can get to net zero by 2030 is, is hard to say. I imagine most attendees wouldn't think that that's feasible uh, based on the current market design and, and current technologies. There's an awful long way to go uh, before we get to that point. Uh, but I think in terms of direction of travel, most people were in agreement with the ideas that, um, that Alan was talking about. So to kind of further triangulate on all of this, what do you say to the people within the Labour caucus, but also outside? So maybe, I don't know whether you encountered the Extinction Rebellion on your, on your way here, but what do you say to the people who are calling for action even faster than that? The Extinction Rebellion are calling for net zero by 2025. Are you, do you, do you back that as, I, as an idea, or, or on the flip side, put it provocatively as Boris did, do you deem them to be uncooperative crusties in hemp-smelling bivouacs, Alan? I would uh, say of Extinction Rebellion that they are actually a tremendous weapon of conscience as far as the trajectory that we are on. And indeed, the climate strikers are uh, in the same position. And what they are saying, I think, is actually outriding on those dates in order to keep the rest of us absolutely with our noses to the grindstone on all this. Now, he said at one point that leaving the market to sort it out is imprudent. Is that something that you think most people would agree with? I mean, I think most people agree that energy markets are a construct of policy. And it is the fact that we want to reduce emissions uh, from our system is something that the market left to its own devices would not, would not achieve. Um, because carbon emissions are something that people don't fully factor in um, unless you price them properly. So as, and as soon as you price those emissions, you're already intervening in the market to try and deliver a different outcome. We're already very far down that road and so the the difference between any of the political parties on these matters is is not so great and probably the main distinction is is around the idea of nationalization uh, of various companies where there is a clear difference between the conservatives and lib dems and and labor and perhaps there's a a small difference in their level of ambition but they all seem now wedded all parties are now wedded to the idea that we need to do something about this Finally then, at the end of the day, I sat down with John Federson, Aurora's chief executive. I started by asking what the big changes have been since the early battery storage and flexibility conferences. We've always had a panel on financing flexible assets. I think there, across the industry, is an embrace of risk and of merchant revenue streams, and that has changed I think absolutely fundamentally in the last three years. Uh, Three years ago, people were talking about government contracted revenues and they existed as a way particularly to develop battery storage assets. And I think if 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 you were sitting and seeing what was said today, three years ago, it would have felt like an alien world. But I think it's a sign of the maturity of the industry, the complexity and sophistication of people's understanding of it. So I think that's probably the most striking thing for me today. You held a one-to-one with uh, Finton Sly from the National Grid. Firstly, did you book him before August the 9th? 
<laughs> no, I bu- actually, I booked him after. That was the striking thing. And I, and I said that uh, uh, in my final comments on stage. I said it was remarkable that Finton was prepared, you know, wasn't wearing a bulletproof vest, uh, came out and was prepared to front some very difficult questions about a very difficult time for a lot of people um, living in the GB system. When they, obviously, when we had those outages on the 9th of August. Uh, so, no, we booked him after. Uh, he said, John, I would welcome a Q&A with the audience. Um, we need to be able to have a dialogue about these things. And he, you know, he didn't disappoint. And what did you make of the answers he gave? His comments on the trains are interesting. And that, was, that struck me that actually the, the electricity wasn't cut to the trains. And that certainly seemed to have caused the most public discontent. It was actually settings on trains that were sensitive to frequency changes. So I I don't think, based on what Finton said, I don't think that's the last we've heard of uh, this issue, particularly around the London trains and why they shut off. Do you think but for the trains, the public response would have been a lot weaker to this type of event? It was a sunny August Friday evening. You know, people trying to get home from work, people trying to head off on holidays. It was, you know, very visual on the media then as well in terms of stations being closed, people walking on tracks. So it was, it, it made it into a really, really significant issue. And we shouldn't underestimate the scale of disruption to people who are trying to get home. Or, or, or that is, in microcosm, I suspect, um, the problem maybe the energy industry has, the problem that you guys have, is when these things are reported in the press, beyond whatever subject it is towards energy, they're highly simplified and you don't get the nuances, do you? Yeah. I think it's an enormous challenge for this industry. I asked Finton that question. I said, has, has this precipitated more action and mobilised policymakers to address some of these issues? He said, of course, it's never welcome. Um, and I think I would add, and I think Finton would probably agree with me, that actually policy that's being made after a disaster or a catastrophe is often rushed and often, often um, imprecise. So I think it is an issue we have. And, and I think... I think it speaks to actually preventative action. If you're of the view, as I am, that policymakers will panic when these sorts of issues happen and they will do silly things, then a natural policy response is to invest a little bit more in ensuring these things don't happen. I thought the capacity market in the UK was a great sign of that. Every October before winter, we would have uh, uh, big, big stories in newspapers how the lights were going to go out. Uh, And because there were stories about them potentially going out, they never actually did because policy was in front of that. We never had to respond to a crisis, unlike we've seen in other other markets where uh, lights have gone out, people have panicked and done silly short-term things. John Federson there. Thanks so much for listening. Remember, if you want to find out more about our work, go to auroraer.com. You can also follow us on social media and subscribe to our newsletter. For now, though, it's goodbye.